You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. If you're still disabled two years after a head injury, received wisdom is that you're not going to see a long-term improvement. But a study in this month's JNNP has shown that that's not actually the case. Within this kind of figure of 50% being disabled, it really hides the fact that disability changes in a significant number of people in about 50%. And if you work with dementia patients, you may well have used the Shelton scale. That is, the simple way of assessing hippocampal atrophy. Philip Shelton's is the man behind the name, and from humble beginnings in the pub, his scale has taken on a life of its own. I've always been surprised uh, by the fact that now, in 2012, we are still using visual rating. But before all of that, cannabis for multiple sclerosis. Here's editor Matthew Kiernan talking to John Zajicek. He's a professor of clinical neuroscience at Peninsula College of Medicine and Dentistry about his research into treating the condition with cannabis extract. Well, uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce Professor Zajcek, who this month has the editor's choice for the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry, and his study, Multiple Sclerosis and Extract of Cannabis, results from the MUSIC trial. So perhaps, uh, Professor Zajcek, could give us some background as to how the study came about. Well, in the 1990s, I was asked by the MS Society in the UK to um, try and design a trial to assess whether cannabis had any therapeutic benefit in multiple sclerosis. And the primary outcome in, during that trial was something called the Ashworth scale, which is a, a very old measure of um, stiffness assessed usually by a physiotherapist. And on the Ashworth scale, these drugs didn't seem to make any difference, um, according to the independent winners. But from the patient perspective, they certainly seemed to help their symptoms. And uh, in addition, there was evidence that it seemed to speed up the rate of walking in people that could walk. So... Um, we then went on to to look for a, a follow-up study for a year to see if there was um, any persisting benefit. And there seemed to be a, a, an indication that these drugs might have a, a different effect beyond the, the, the main 15-week period. So this first trial led to two further studies. One was the MUSEC study that's just been published in the JNNP. And this looked at Canador and um, really from the patient perspective to try and confirm the findings from the original CAM study that these drugs are going to help um, MS-related stiffness, pain, muscle spasms, and sleep. And what this uh, MUSEC study um, then showed was that these drugs certainly do help um, and it provides the best evidence so far for a symptomatic um, benefit from um, cannabinoids. And have you um, got any thoughts about the pathways of action for, for cannabis with these symptoms? Well, um, it's a very active area for scientific research at the moment because uh, it turns out that um, there are two main cannabis receptors in the body, CB1, which is the commonest receptor in the brain, CB1. And it's mostly found on nerve cells and it controls neurotransmitter release. In addition, CB2 is mostly found on lymphocytes and probably has a role in, in, in controlling inflammation. 
there are these receptors also on blood vessels. Um, so this effect could be through a variety of mechanisms. It could be through um, improving blood flow. It could be through um, direct effect of uh, CB1 either peripherally or centrally. In addition, there's um, experimental evidence to suggest that cannabinoids may also have uh, lots of other effects, including reduce damage from excitotoxic neurotransmitters such as glutamate. They may help to reduce inflammation. They may help to encourage remyelination, and they may be neuroprotective and reduce uh, apoptosis. So there are a number of really potentially exciting ways that cannabinoids may be useful, um, not just in MS, but for a number of different neurological diseases. And I suppose rather than just simple mechanisms in terms of the level of action. I mean, for for most clinicians, as neurologists, you'd think that muscle spasms and stiffness might be more peripheral. And, and given that MS is typically a central disorder, do you think this is acting more through spinal pathways or, or directly through central receptors? I, my own view is that it's more likely to be central, um, but some people believe that um, some of these actions may be peripheral, and there are CB1 receptors on um, peripheral pain pathways as well as in muscles. So it could be a combination of both. Um, and one of the problems with using these kind of drugs is that you do get side effects. You can't avoid the psychoactivity and um, sort of dizziness and, and slight euphoria that people with MS don't really want. So some people believe that if you can develop a peripherally acting CB1 agonist that doesn't get into the central nervous system, then you might be able to get those peripheral effects without the psychoactivity, and that might be very useful. And I suppose given these exciting findings, I'm sure many MS patients would like access to the uh, therapy. And what what is the uh, current access like for, for MS patients? Well, the only drug that's licensed and available in some countries is this uh, Sativex, which is, again, a combination of uh, THC and CBD, which is the the drug, um, the, the same sort of combination as we used in um, the MUSAC trial. The problem with Sativex and, and probably the problem with a lot of these drugs is that they're, they're not that cheap. So some places have made the drug available. A lot of places haven't because trying to assess symptoms related to multiple sclerosis is very difficult from a cost-effectiveness way if you're trying to put a quality-adjusted life year value on reduced muscle stiffness and sleeping better. It's, it's quite a tricky thing. You've touched there on the area of uh, improved sleep quality, which a study has also shown. I suppose, was that an expected or unexpected finding? From our original CAM study, we found that the, the symptoms that really helped with these drugs were muscle stiffness, pain, muscle spasms, and sleep quality. And it seems to work particularly in those people with MS that have mainly pyramidal problems in the central nervous system that, are, that cause this kind of dragging, heavy sensation in the legs with a nagging pain which keeps people awake at night and causes muscle spasms which keeps people awake at night. And often we try things like gabaragnus, such as baclofen or tizanidine for stiffness, and we try uh, gabapentin or pregabalin for the pain. Um, and often people don't get benefit from those drugs or they get side effects. And this is where cannabis can particularly be useful. It's also, as we've shown, that it does seem to improve um, bladder control. 
And your paper has, has mentioned some of the side effects. You've, you've highlighted dizziness and uh, headache. What about um, issues such as appetite stimulation and, and weight changes? Did you encounter that much? Well, interestingly, we haven't. Um, obviously, one of the recognized side effects is that cannabis, uh, if you smoke it, you can get the munchies, but we didn't actually come across that as a major problem in, in therapeutic usage. And you've mentioned that you're looking now into primary progressive MS. I suppose, what are the uh, next steps as, as a result of this, this current MUSEC trial? Well, we've now just finished a trial called CUPID, which stands for Cannabinoid Use in Progressive Inflammatory Brain Disease. So that's um, for people with primary and secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. And we asked them to take either placebo or THC capsules for three years. Overall, there didn't seem to be an effect on slowing disease, but in people with earlier disease um, that didn't need a stick to walk, it seemed to have an effect there. We're still puzzling over these results, but we hope to be able to publish um, the full paper in the next few weeks. Well, look, uh, it's a fascinating study, and I'd like to congratulate you on a really well-performed uh, clinical trial. And your study will be freely downloadable through the JNMP website for any interested readers. So thanks again. Pleasure. Thank you for your compliments. If you're admitted to a Glaswegian hospital between February 95 and 96 with a head injury, you'd have become part of a study examining disability after these traumas. And recently, 12 to 14 years after that original injury, you'd have been contacted to see how you're getting on. Tom McMillan, who's a professor of clinical neuropsychology at Glasgow University, has led this follow-up, and I spoke to him over the phone to hear what they found. I began by asking how much is known about long-term outcomes in these patients. Well, there are um, some papers which report outcome at 10 years and some a bit longer than that after injury. Uh, Many of these papers are cross-sectional papers, or retrospective papers, where they're looking at information that's been gathered um, at the time of the study, um, and often with little information uh, going back to the time of the injury. Mm. So the advantage of of this cohort we have is that we've got information prospectively from the time of injury uh, right up now to 12 to 14 years after injury. One of the um, issues really with many of the previous studies is that they've They've not been able to look at people repeatedly over time, so we don't know how they've changed or how how disabled they were uh, near to the injury. And um, partly for this reason, I think, um, received wisdom has been that, by and large, if people are disabled uh, two years after injury, that there's not too much likelihood of significant changes in their daily function after that. So what did your results show when you assessed disability through the Glasgow Outcome Scale? Well, overall, the number of people who were disabled um, at at 5 to 7 and 12 to 14 years, the proportion was about the same, a little over 50%. But um, if you then look at change in disability over time, what you find is that within this kind of figure of 50% being disabled, it really hides the fact that disability changes in a significant number of people in about 50%. So so some people, their disability scores had improved and then some had deteriorated uh, between Mm. these two time points. So even though that broad figure 
looks as though things are remaining the same. It's actually quite dynamic. It's quite dynamic, yeah. Did you find any factors which seem to predict this? Well, the factors that were, were associated with change, uh, interestingly, were, were um, by and large psychological factors. So it wasn't, for example, the severity of the head injury that was the most important thing. There were psychological factors, such as cognitive function at five to seven years, self-esteem, anxiety and depression. These are associated with disability at these two time points. Um, and the factor which was associated with change in disability between these two points um, was locus of control. So tell me a bit more about this locus of control. How did you measure that? Well, it's measured by a questionnaire. And what it uh, refers to is really the perception of a person in terms of whether the uh, control over their daily lives is in their own hands or whether it's in the hands of others. In terms of the people who, where you tended to find deterioration, the, the perception of these people was that the control of their lives was with others, that they were not really the people who were determining their own uh, fate, if you like. And that's really quite striking that that's the only feature you found that, that seemed to be able to to change the outcome at 12 years. Do you, I mean, do you think clinicians are aware of this in any way? Well, I, I suspect not, because I think many people will have thought that disability is not dynamic, and certainly if going by a rule of thumb at two years, that there's not likely to be changed, and certainly by five to seven years, people thinking that probably not much is likely to happen mm. in terms of disability. But if you know, this study suggests that psychological factors are important for some people. That provides a vehicle, really, uh, for us to try to create positive change. Late after injury, one should be uh, perhaps following people up and giving them access to psychological therapies, which might be able to influence their self-perceptions. And if you want to read that paper in full, it's now up on the JNMP website. Professor Macmillan and colleagues also looked at survival in these patients and put this into a separate paper, also published in JNMP. So there's a link to that on the podcast webpage. And now we'll look at the Shelton scale, a simple way of assessing hippocampal atrophy. Philip Shelton's is the Shelton's behind the scale. He's now Professor of Cognitive Neurology and Director of the Alzheimer's Centre at the VU University Medical Centre in Amsterdam. And over the phone, he told me how the method came into being. We felt that we uh, wanted to have a, a simple yet effective uh, method of, of looking at the scans, and especially um, on the medial temporal lobe, so the hippocampus. And it was at that time there was nothing available, and no volumetric methods uh, were, were present to do this. So we had only hard copies at that time, and um, we just sat down, uh, Frederick Barkov and myself, and we dotted down some some sort of uh, let's say well this is this would be a zero if it's completely normal and this would be very abnormal and it was on a, on a piece of paper on a on a on a coaster I think it wasn't a big deal of thinking going uh, going uh, before this uh, this came about it was really very practical just sitting down and say well let's let's try to characterize what we see here 
in in straight numbers. Mm. And you did this fairly quickly too, is that right? Yeah, very quick. I think it was all done in a, in an afternoon or, or even less. Oh, yeah. it's, not, it's not bad <laughs> for an afternoon in the pub, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you you wanted this to be a quick and easy method yeah. of, of looking at the scans and in assessing the size. Yeah. Um, so when you came to, to validate it, how quick and easy did you find it actually was? Well, that's that's the most surprising thing. It was quick and easy. We have uh, several articles uh, we wrote about uh, validating it and, and using it and, and uh, testing the inter and intra-observer reliability. And it, and it still surprises me, even now, today, people are learning it and, and doing it and learning by doing it, how quickly it's being picked up by, uh, by even non-radiologists, uh, neurologists, psychiatrists, geriatricians. I advise everybody to do it themselves and to do a quick training. And what I found out is that once people have, have, have learned it, have got the um, sort of the, the method in it, it's a way, it's a sort of imprinted in your brain. So if, if you do it two weeks later or a month later or six months later, you will give exactly the same scores to the scans as you did before. So mm. there's very high intra-observer uh, reliability because somehow you and I may differ in our scoring, but you and I will be very consistent in the way we do it ourselves. And um, you went on to, to adapt the scale to exclude... Um, types of dementia other than Alzheimer's. How did you go about doing that? Yeah, well, that's, of course, a very important thing. We thought in the beginning that hippocampal atrophy was very uh, unique to Alzheimer's disease. That's how it came about in the literature from pathology, etc. So we then said, well, if that's the case, then we have to test it, of course, first for its sensitivity, distinguishing AD patients from normal aging. Well, that's, that seems to be the case. But then the other point is the specificity. So how specific is it for Alzheimer's disease? Uh, so I got a visit from a PhD student, Claire Galton, uh, from the group of John Hodges at that time. And she came and she said, we want to use the scale also for our frontotemporal dementia patients. And she made a, a sort of adaptation of the scale and to use it in their population. But then I worked with her on their sample and I saw, well, in FTD, there is also hippocampal atrophy. So we then went on with Laura van der Poel, the, the one who I wrote the, this piece with. She also tested it in a variety of other dementias um, in our own population, and we saw that hippocampal atrophy is not that specific for Alzheimer's disease. The difference is mainly the asymmetry. In the other dementias, like frontotemporal dementia, you see more asymmetric hippocampal atrophy, so you have differences in scores between left and right. Mm. The most severe hippocampal atrophy, so grade 4, you see in some of the FTD cases, while you don't see that as much in the AD cases. So there is uh, clearly, uh, 10 years, 12 years after we've done this, we have seen that there is sort of a lack of specificity. You have to use this scale in connection to your clinical evaluation. So never, Mm. never, never make a diagnosis based on the MR or the score itself, but use it in... Uh, connection to what you do clinically. Sure, okay. And what about using the scale to diagnose mild cognitive impairment? Could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So mild cognitive impairment was a, a, a term that was coined for the first time in the late 90s, 97, I believe, uh, by Ron Peterson. It was um, revisited in uh, 2001, I think. Um, and from that time on, uh, people started using um, MR, 
volumetrics, but also MR visual rating to see whether um, the MR could be used to yeah, predict which of the patients in the MCI cohort would go on to develop AD. We did it ourselves also together with uh, Charlie DiCarli in uh, 2007. We used a large uh, data set on the uh, vitamin E study uh, in the United States. Ron Peterson was the first author. And we went went back to all the patients who had a baseline scan. And we used the visual rating to predict uh, which of the patients had uh, gone on to Alzheimer's disease three years later. And it turned out that scores of two and higher, so two, three, and four, were actually quite predictive of... Um, people are going on to um, to develop the AD. So the basic idea behind that is that um, patients who have MCI and already at that time point have hippocampal atrophy, those are the patients who have the underlying AD pathology. Mm. So it's had a, a very good life, this scale, um, you know, branching out and being very practical. Yeah. And um, what's next for it? Is that continuing? Well... I've always been surprised uh, by the fact that now in 2012 we are still using visual rating because I had imagined that it was basically um, useful for a short period of time until we would have better methods, um, automatic um, sort of uh, extraction of the volume, uh, qualitative assessment of of volume by a, a simple method. But in fact, that's not the case. So I see still that there is a future life uh, for the visual rating, especially in clinical settings uh, where there is no sophisticated uh, volumetric tool uh, available. Um, And also, uh, we have extended the life of this scale by applying it to CT, coronal slices on CT, because modern CT scanners can do a a coronal slice in in a couple of minutes, actually, without turning the patient or doing anything with the patient. So it has actually gone a second life in CT scan. And I've found out that there are many, many places in the world where MR is still not that accessible Mm. and memory clinics use CT. And if you have a coronal slice, you can use the scale on CT as well as you can on MRI. We have done that with um, the study from our own group comparing the uh, the CT and MRs of the same patients and the scale is actually as good on CT as it is on MRI. So I think there's a future life, especially in uh, in clinical practice, but I do hope for research that we will have uh, far better methods and far, far sensitive and specific measures using a, a quantitative assessment giving you the actual volume of the hippocampus. And what is lacking in that field is the standardization. So uh, we, there are still huge differences between labs uh, measuring the hippocampus uh, in, in Finland and, and Holland and England. They may be so different that that's not very uh, useful for, for practice. So that's why I think there is still a future for visual rating in clinical practice. Thanks there to Philip Shelton's. Professor Shelton's has also written an impact commentary for JNMP on the scale. So have a look at that for more of the detail. That's it for now. Come back next month for highlights of December's issue. Thanks for joining us. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.